uh, teaching this morning on the grace of God. We called it Embrace the Grace. And we need to really understand God's favor and uh, His undeserved kindness in our life. And we started last week talking a little bit about how God reaches out to us in grace. And uh, I just mentioned to you as we got started, you know, grace is really Christianity 101. If we don't, if we don't get a handle on this subject, then um, we're going to somehow convolute and distort what the rest of the Christian life is all about. God works with us and towards us out of His grace. And uh, you may know that, and that may sound like Christianity 101, and you've been serving God and loving the Lord for many, many years, and you would say, well, pastor, this is kind of a review for me, but I'm telling you that, that it's, it's a good review. Because in the a time period we're living in, it's become so convoluted and it's become so twisted that I really feel like I, I need to do my best to untangle just a couple of areas that will help you understand why it is that God may or may not be doing what he's doing in your life. You know, if if you are living under even a half-truth or if you're living under something that's convoluted or distorted and you think God should be moving in your life a certain way, but he's not, do you understand that, that it's you who needs to change and God's not changing to fit your convoluted ideas? See, we can't just develop our own thinking and thoughts and, you know, well, this is how I see it and God's obligated to move according to how I see it. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Then he'd just be this little butler, wouldn't he, running around making sure all of us are tended to. But we are the servants. He is the master. So we've got to understand how it is that God relates to us, how he works towards us, what it is he's doing inside of us. And when we get a hold of that, then we can anticipate and expect unmerited favor and kindness and graciousness. And and I know that most of you understand. You understand God's nature and, and all the rest. But we're just un, underscoring some things. And let me say one more thing before we get rolling this morning. You got to be here to hear the whole counsel of God. Now, I'm going to talk about some really amazing stuff this morning. And, and, and I thought last week we had some amazing stuff. God's just incredible love and kindness towards us. But if you don't hear the whole scoop, uh, you're, you're going to end up being led in a direction that will not produce what you think should be happening in your life. So really, you got to know the whole scoop. And I hope you'll take the time, make the effort. And you'll be with us every one of these Sundays so uh, you can make sure you get this important stuff under your belt. So, all right, embrace the grace. Um, I wrote also down here next week, I wanted just to remind you, um, I'm going to be on this subject again. And I may have in this whole series the single most important uh, instruction I will ever give that will last the rest of your life. Um, we're going to talk about Something that could literally save your life. And I, and I hope the young people you show up don't dodge me next week because I'm going to talk about how God moves in our heart and what happens when our heart becomes hard. And uh, you just need to keep a soft heart towards God. And so we're, we're going to delve into that uh, next week, but I'm telling you, it, it may be the most life-changing thing we'll ever share. So uh, I just wanted to put that out so you would for certain be here in the house of God. Amen, right? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Amen. I'll tell you what, on the count of three, everyone say amen. One, two, three. Amen. I, okay, you're there. 
If I have to do my own amens, this will last long. <laughs> Let's roll. Some months ago, I, uh, I received an anonymous letter. Now, I want you to know that I am an expert in anonymous letters. Um, most of the time, the reason they're anonymous is, is because they're not that endearing. Uh, most of the time, they come to me unsigned because they've been quickened by the Lord to express to me a concern. And um, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, when I get anonymous letters, I'll just say this out loud. I've gotten them all through my life. I've gotten files. I don't even keep them. I shouldn't say files. They go into the circular file, actually. But, but I'll just say up front, I usually don't pay much attention to an anonymous letter. And the, and the reason being is, is that I feel like if you're, you know, passionate about something, sign it. I mean, 54 men had to sign the Declaration of Independence. They didn't send an anonymous letter to King George, you know. So I really feel like, you know, if, if and I've written letters that I, I knew were probably not going to be received all that well, and I signed it. Did I want to send an anonymous letter? Sure. I don't want them to know it's me. You know, I want them to get the word of the Lord, but I don't want them to know it's me. So, so anyway, I got this, this several months ago. I got this anonymous letter. I didn't even, I, I haven't even shared this with, with my wife. And uh, I've been going through a time when I've been doing my best to glean whatever's good and, and learn how to cast away anything that's, that's, that's bad. And we have lived under this precept in our household for some time. At least we've endeavored to try to live with that. That if someone comes and, and let's say they have some criticisms or concerns or whatever the case may be, whether, you know, church life, personal life, whatever the case may be, we have tried, I don't know that we've been the best at it, but we've tried to be able to hear what is accurate and discard what's not. Because even if you got something that was 90% crazy, but 10% was accurate, how many of you know that that 10% still needs to be dealt with? Right? And if you're committed to the truth, you ought to at least attempt to sift through maybe the nuttiness and, and, and try to get uh, to that which is legitimate. Now, having started this illustration, let me also say this up front. Do not send me an anonymous letter. All right. This is no anonymous emails, no anonymous letters. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to hear and be able to distinguish what God may even want to do in my life. But but in this letter, the person stated to me, interestingly enough, they attended here years ago. The phrase was years ago. Didn't want their name to color what was being shared. It was, it was well presented. I have to be honest. It was well written. It was, it was not really even this time, which kind of caught my attention. It wasn't all that critical. It was simply suggesting to me that I read a book that they said had transformed their lives. And they didn't want to put their name down because that, they thought somehow that would shade or color uh, what was being communicated here. Now, they didn't know that I'd already read the book, and I usually stay up to date on a lot of the newest published items, not everything, but, but, but I try, try to stay uh, up to date in my reading. But I could read, as I was reading between the lines, and some of you have maybe have gotten letters like this, or maybe you've had conversations like this, you know there's what's being stated, and then there's what's in between the lines. You're following me. And I could I could tell in between the lines, not being overly, overly paranoid or speculative, I could kind of tell in between the lines that the intimation was because of the book they were wanting me to read, 
it was this. Pastor, you could use a little more grace. That was the intimation. You could, you could probably demonstrate and use a little more grace understanding. And I remember as I was reading this, now understand, probably doing the same thing you might do. You get this and you're, and you're looking at it. You're, you're, you're hearing what's being said at, at the, that, at, at, you know, just the natural level. And then you're looking through it, sort of what's in between the lines. And, and initially your reaction is, what, what do you mean I'm not full of grace? Come over here. I'll beat some grace into you. You know, I mean, how, how could it even be suggested that I didn't have grace in my life? But interestingly, that was probably months ago, the beginning of some incredibly deep and profound things that have started to really move and manifest inside of me. I often think I'm kind of a John Wesley nut. I like Wesley and Whitfield. I like that time period in America. And, you know, John Wesley, uh, in his early days of ministry, actually came to America and he uh, started a mission in Georgia, reaching out mostly to the Indians. But while he was in Georgia, he ended up getting uh, the governor of Georgia mad at him. He, I think he jilted his daughter, Sophie. And so there was this upheaval that took place in the Georgia colony and and, and Wesley just really had made a mess of it all. And, and because of the mess that was made uh, in all of this relational stuff, uh, the governor and, and his family came to church one day in order to uh, participate at church. And, and he refused to serve them communion. And, and he had this big upheaval with the governor. And in this upheaval, the governor, I think, made some threats. And so anyway, we aren't really sure. But but as best as we can figure it out, Wesley made a, a nighttime departure out of Georgia to sail back to England. And it had so it had so discouraged him and it had so uh, just just beat him up. And I don't know whether Wesley was totally right in what he did or not. I don't know whether he was exhibiting, you know, what he needed to do by way of discipline or whether or not. Uh, you know, he had just missed it and lacked grace. But the thing that was interesting about Wesley was, is that he went back to England and it was while he was there that he began to read some of the writings of the Moravians and he began to interact with some Moravian missionaries. And it was after that time period that he was walking down Aldersgate Street on May 24, 1738 at 845 in the evening where he heard the preface to the epistle to the Romans being read out of an upper window as he was walking along. And it was there he said that his heart was strangely warmed. Something happened inside of him. What that tells me and why I like that story is because you know what? You, you can have been in the church for years. You can be doing the work of the ministry. You can think you know Jesus and that book backwards and forwards, but you still need your heart strangely warmed. And I've just found a time in my life where I needed my heart strangely warmed. And so a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning has to do with some of these things. And I've entitled the message today, Frustrating the Grace of God. Frustrating the Grace of God. If you have your Bibles, you can find the second chapter of Galatians. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can watch the screen. I'm sure they're going to post it overhead here in just a moment. Galatians 2 verse 21 in the New King James Version. Go ahead and post it, guys. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Now, if you have an old King James Version with you, it, it will say this. I do not frustrate. Everyone say frustrate. 
Come on. I do not frustrate the grace of God. It says, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, I just want to spring off this verse. We're going to talk about several things this morning, but I want to talk about frustrating the grace of God. I don't know if you've ever pondered the question I have. Is it possible to frustrate God? Now, the reason I ask that question is because if it is, then he probably spends a lot of time frustrated. But if you really stop and think about it for just a moment and and you begin to ponder who God is and what he can do. I mean, think about this. Who can stop God? I mean, if he wants to get his will done, there's nothing that can stop him. He's 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 I mean, he's unstoppable, unshakable. What's more powerful than God? Nothing. And so when you ask the question, is it possible to frustrate God? You're kind of in this confusing moment because there's a part of you that says, well, as I look around, I'm sure he's frustrated. But yet at the same time, he's got all power and authority. So what could really frustrate him? But it's interesting as you read this, Paul says, listen now, this is going to be very important. Paul says, think about it, Paul's writing. He says, I will not frustrate the grace of God. Now, I want you to get this. It wasn't the world that's frustrating the grace of God. Now, the world's frustrating sometimes, isn't it? I mean, is there anybody this week that wasn't frustrated? At least once. I mean, you can visualize their face right now. They frustrated you. The world's frustrating. But he wasn't saying it's the world that frustrates the grace of God. He didn't say it's the lost folk, you know, the heathen out there that's frustrating the grace of God. Paul said, it was me. I will not. The Apostle Paul, I will not frustrate the grace of God. Now, let's make this very personal right now. What that means is, is that you and I, me and you, can somehow frustrate the working of God, listen to me, in people's lives. Now, this is going to be a really important lesson. We can frustrate what God wants to do in people's lives. That's exactly what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I cannot set aside. I cannot frustrate the grace of God. He's talking to the Galatian church. He says, I cannot frustrate the grace of God. Now, Paul perhaps understood this better than most people. He was, as you will recall, he was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. There was no better example of frustrating God than the group who's best known for being frustrating. Pharisees. I mean, y'all know, you've heard the name Pharisees somewhere. Somewhere back in my mind, I've heard that word somewhere, and I know they ain't good. Pharisees. Pharisees are a a religious group sect of people during Jesus' time, Paul's time, that that frustrated the grace of God. How did they frustrate the grace of God? They frustrated it by attempting to get people right with God and to keep them right with God by application of the law and sometimes adding to the law in their life. So in other words, this group, they said in order for us to merit something from God, in order for us to have a relationship with God, in order for us to to contact God, you've got to obey the law 
And we're going to give you some add-ons to that just to help you out in order that you can keep this connection with God. Now, I have thought about the Pharisees through the years because um, through the years at various times and forms and fashions, um, you know, when, when, when people... When you're applying discipline, people will think you're a Pharisee. You know, anytime anybody is under discipline, they automatically think you're a legalist. You know that, don't you? I mean, they automatically think somehow or another you're being a legalist because discipline. Let me tell you, there is discipline in the scripture and you can still be under grace. Sure you can. God will discipline you. He needed to kill you is what he needed to do. But he decided that instead of killing you, he was going to just discipline you because you're under grace. Right? So, so. Just make sure you're thinking right. But I have on occasion thought about this group. And I know undoubtedly, because I read the Bible, that many of them were deceived. They were corrupt. They were self-serving. Uh, obviously, they put uh, uh, weighty burdens on the people. Obviously, they had a whole system that had developed that was convoluted and it was ripping people off. I mean, we, we know sort of superficially a little bit about the Pharisees. But can I just share this with you? I started thinking about them and I thought to myself, you know, that is true. That's what we read about them in the Bible. But they didn't get there overnight. You know, nobody wakes up one morning and says, ah, it's a great day. I guess I'll rob a bank. There's something that happens. They make decisions day after day after day after day until finally the day arrives and they go rob the quick shop and then the police pick them up and they start interviewing. Why did you do this? And you know what's interesting? They say to themselves, I, I don't know. I don't know how I got here. Well, truth of the matter is, if you stop and think about it for just a minute, there is a way you got there. You made some little decisions, sometimes imperceptible decisions. Just little things that didn't mean much at the time. You see, this much of a step isn't a big deal, is it? When over here is prison. Let's say this is prison right here. And, and you're living life over here. And you make just this little step. Now, that, that in and of itself is not that big a deal. I mean, you're a long way from going to prison. But you see, what happens is, imperceptibly, we just start making steps. Until the day comes... When we make this final little step, we're in prison and we wake up and say, how did I get here? Well, there were about a hundred different decisions you made that got you to that place. I, I tell you that simply to say that nobody wakes up one morning and says, oh, today's a good day to be deceived. I guess I choose deception this morning. Nobody does that. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, I guess I'll crash my life today. Today looks like a good day just to get you know, signed into the psych ward and just crash. Nobody wakes up like that. There are things that happen that get us to these points. Now, the Pharisees had reached a point in Jesus' day and in Paul's day that leaves us with a very unflattering picture. But I started to think about them and I thought to myself that I have to believe at some point in their early history, they were making some decisions that weren't grossly out of whack. They weren't egregiously off the main line. They're just little things. And I started to think about how a person might get there. I started to think about how probably in the early days, they were just trying to live all out for God. I started to think about how in their early days, they were probably just trying to help people stay on target. How many of you have worked with people trying to keep them on target? Do you understand how hard it is to keep people on target? 
I suspect they just were saying, how are we going to help people stay on target with their relationship with God? They're trying to keep people disciplined in their walk with God because God asks of us certain disciplines and responsibilities. They were trying to help them understand that God brings convictions to our life. Do you also realize that when God saves you, He doesn't leave you like you are? When He saves you, He transforms you, and then He sanctifies you, which means if you've lived for God, let's say, ten years, that your life should look a little bit different ten years later than it did the moment you met Jesus. That's what sanctify means. But we also know that there have been people saying they've loved God for decades and they don't look much different than folks that never met Him. So there's probably something going on in their mind that's saying, well, we got to help people understand that God will give them convictions and standards and, 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 and things will begin to leave their life while they begin to embrace other things. And I just started thinking in my mind about how all of this could happen. And maybe they were, maybe they were just trying to provide an order for people by which they could develop confidence. They could, they could have a confidence that they were serving God and loving God and like I said, they, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to be a legalist today. Nobody does that. Nobody wants to frustrate the very one we're attempting to love and to serve. I mean, don't you think that through the centuries, think about these groups as they've developed. Don't, don't you think they didn't see through the centuries all the shenanigans people try to pull over on the Lord? Don't you think they didn't see people compromise and cut corners? Don't you think they didn't see people presume on the goodness of God? Can I just share this with you every now and then? I'm going to make a confession. This is transparency time. Every now and then, I want to help God out. I want to be Holy Spirit Junior. I think I'd be very good at the job. Are you following me? Now, is my motive wrong? Probably not initially. But there comes a moment when all of a sudden my wanting to help God out becomes replacing it with being this is how God will or won't do it. I ran across a cartoon. It may not strike you funny. It struck me funny at the time when I looked at it. There were two cartoon characters that are walking along and one of the characters was this dominant choleric personality, you know, just very aggressive type A, whatever type one, whatever that type is. You may, I mean, you've met him and, and very, very dominant. And then, then the friend was a very passive, melancholy type of personality. They're walking along and the dominant one, the choleric says, if I were in charge of the world, I would change everything. And the other one who was a little bit intimidated said, well, uh, you know, that, that probably wouldn't be easy. I mean, like, where would you start? And the dominant one goes, I would start with you. And that's, 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 that's how you are. It's like there comes this moment that you're going, I'm going to help God out and I'm going to start with you. You can't hear from the Holy Ghost. Don't worry about it anymore. I'll be the Holy Ghost for you. I've heard from him a lot. And unfortunately, when we want to help God out, at times what happens is we fall back into what I call the spirit of the law. 
Now, it may not be the law, but it's the spirit of the law. Because what happens is, this is what Jesus says, what begins to happen. Is that we begin to pick specks out of people's eyes and we miss the beam that's in our own. You see, this is how it works. I'm just telling you how it works. When we look at people, their speck looks like a beam and our beam looks like a speck to us. Isn't that true? And, and, and Jesus says, you got to realize you're grabbing specks and there's this, this beam. Paul said, this is what he said. Listen to what he says. He said, I, I will not frustrate the grace of God. Now, I want to be clear because all through this, I know what our current society, church society has done with a lot of what grace is. I want to be clear. The grace of God does not lower any standard. The grace of God uh, does not somehow minimize the nature of sin and what sin is. But listen to me, it does transform the way we look at things, the way we look at people. Paul and Jesus clearly pointed out sin in action and attitude. I mean, is it not true? I mean, Jesus pointed out sin. Paul spent several chapters in his writings dealing with people in the church who were in sin. Let me tell you something. There was no, there was no compromise on the sin issue. But the key is that you, you, you can't function under the spirit of the law. You've got to get the spirit of grace and truth. That's what Jesus came carrying. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So for us, we no longer beat our chests and say, thank God I'm not like them. But rather, we say, forgive me, Lord. And there but for the grace of God go I. We no longer pick up stones and be the first one in line to execute justice. But rather realize that he who is without sin, let him be the first one to cast stone. And we find ourselves dropping the rocks. We no longer think so highly of ourselves and suddenly believe our own press. And that includes the press in our own head. That somehow, you know, well, we're all that in a bag of chips. But rather with the Apostle Paul, this is what he said late in his apostleship. He said, I am the chief among sinners. And I am what I am by the grace of God. That's, that's the spirit we have to keep in our life. If we're functioning under grace. Now, how do I keep from frustrating the grace of God? Turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. There's some great passages here that I just want to uh, walk through real quickly. Ephesians four. I'm going to begin with verse twenty nine. We're going to walk through this slowly. And again, you can watch the screen overhead. You may want to get your pen out and underline a couple words here as we go through your Bibles to remind you of this later when you read it. Ephesians 4.29, it says this. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The word corrupt. Post it, guys. We'll come back to that verse. It means rotten, decayed, like spoiled food. You know, the church at times, all of us have been guilty of this. We just shoot our mouths off. I mean, we don't know what we're saying. We just shoot our mouth and it doesn't have revelation in it. There's no fresh bread about it. It's stale, decayed, rotten stuff. And he says, let no corrupt, stale word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Now, whenever I read the Bible, sometimes I'll try to I'll try to turn it just maybe to give me some understanding. Apparently, there's unnecessary edification. 
He said, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth, but only what is necessary for proper edification. Unnecessary edification, I think, is like flattery. I mean, we don't need flattered. I mean, I mean, flatter, flattery may be nice for a moment, but then it evaporates. What we, what we need is, is that we need to be built up in what God is saying and what God is speaking. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying we need necessary edification. Edification means to be built up. All of us like to be built up. We, we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel good about what we're doing. We want to feel good about life. So let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may what? impart grace to the hearers. Now you need to get a hold of that because if God's going to reach those that you're speaking to, he's going to reach them how? By grace, right? So we've got to get a hold of if if we're going to begin to reach people and touch people, even minister to people, that we're going to have to get a hold of what comes out of our mouth. In verse 30, it's interesting here. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So apparently, if we don't do what verse 29 says, you can begin to grieve God in this whole process. Like frustrate him. You're grieving him. All right. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Then verse 32, it's great here. And be kind to one another. Everyone say kind. Be kind to one another. The word actually means, as I looked it up, hear me, it says easy. Be easy. Be good to one another. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said that my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. It, literally, he's saying, be kind to one another. Don't, don't, you don't have to throw burdens and burdens and burdens on one another. Be kind, be good to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. And, and there's about three different words for forgiving in the scripture, but this is charisomai. And I told you last week that charis was the word for grace. Charisomai. You can hear it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand this, that he's saying more than just, just forgive, but he's saying grace one another. Grace one another, even as God in Christ has what? Graced you. Graced you. Going on, 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're gracing one another as God has graced you, you'll be imitators of God. As as dear children, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, this is what's really interesting here, is because when you begin to read this, this is what happens in my psyche and in our household. It may not work this way in your household, but just bear with me. I told you I was preaching to me. You just get to listen in. In my psyche, I would hear that, and this is the first thing I'd say. I'd say, whoa, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. Don't you know people will take advantage of that? Oh my goodness, if we're kind and, and, and we grace like you've graced us and, and, and we do all the things that you're saying here, do you not know, do you not understand? People will take advantage of it. I'll tell you what, I will be, I will be the guy that you can count on that I'll make sure if anybody's getting by with anything, just leave it to me. See, that's how I'd start to feel. 
Now, listen to me. This is going to be very, very important because really, as God began to work and speak in me, it was important to me. Will people take advantage and presume and twist and convolute the grace of God into something that God never intended for it to be revelation? Yes, they will. Yes, they will. There will always be people who will take the grace of God and they will turn it to their own self-centered purposes by, by saying that they're under grace and yet they'll live like the devil. It's interesting, Paul says these things and, and he leaves us with this opinion that, oh my goodness, I mean, if, I, if I'm easy, I don't put hard burdens on them, if I, if I don't try to discipline, if I don't do these things, I'm not saying we don't discipline, I'm just saying if, if somehow or another I, I, I'm going to not throw the yokes that Jesus doesn't want thrown on us, if I'm going to grace like I've been graced, have mercy, people are going to go wild, Lord, they're just going to go crazy. This is what Paul then says. Listen, in this whole section, he jumps right into and says this, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Isn't that interesting? Because nowhere in the Ten Commandments does it say thou shalt not tell a dirty joke. It doesn't say that. So does that mean we get to tell dirty jokes because it's not codified under the law and I've been freed from the law anyway? So in other words, I can tell all the dirty jokes I want. Paul says this, not if you're under grace, really. Not really. He says, I just want to remind you that as you're gracing one another, that I'm still telling you that these things are not befitting of saints. For this you know that no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man, you see, we're not just dealing with, with external uh, sexual sins, although God has statements to be made about them, but he's talking about our hearts and our attitudes as well. He says, those who are an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these times, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Here, listen. He says, will there be people that will twist and convolute grace? Yes. He says this. Don't, don't you, don't you follow them. They'll lead you down a path that just isn't so. You know, people have been twisting God's stuff for centuries. And I have come to the conclusion that if people have been doing it for centuries, they're going to do it during my century. And uh, I have decided personally that I am no longer, I am no longer Holy Spirit Junior. Now, does that mean that suddenly, whoa, pastor is just leaving an open door? Nope, I'm going to tell you this, just like he says it, the, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You'll either choose to listen to that and embrace that under the grace of God and walk it out. But I can no longer keep people from crashing. I have enough challenge sometimes keeping my own focus. I have enough challenge sometimes in my household. I have enough challenge in my responsibilities. And there comes a moment that I've got to realize that there's nothing I've got personally that can help somebody. Because there before the grace of God go I. But if I lead people to the grace of God, it can transform them. It can change them. It can rearrange them and reprioritize them. And I will no longer frustrate the grace of God.
I'm not going to frustrate the grace of God. There are people I know right now, I'm just going to leave you in the hands of the grace of God right now. I think God will do a better job, probably. I know in minds right now, they'll go, whoo, yeah. I'm free, I'm free. Thank God I'm free. Yeah, you're free, all right. You're free to get it any way God wants to give it to you. You may have been better off having me as Holy Spirit Jr. Now you're going to get Holy Spirit, yeah, senior, the one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now let me show you how this looks. Get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm just sharing stuff. May not be doing much in you, but it sure is helping me. I figure every now and then I ought to just preach to me. 2 Samuel chapter 9. You have your Bibles and you're there? Say, I'm there. All right, good. 2 Samuel 9. I want to... I want to give you just a a picture here of what this looks like. It's not the only picture, but it's part of the picture. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I'm going to stop right there. Is there anyone in the house of Saul, David says, that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This this is one of those passages in the Old Testament that, to be candid, if you don't understand the background, you'll read right through it and it won't make a lick of sense to you. But I'm going to help you get some understanding as to what's going on here. David, David says that he wants to show kindness to somebody who's in the house of Saul. Now, the reason this is amazing is because in those days... When a new king came to the throne from a new family, in other words, this new monarch is suddenly exercising rulership in this kingdom. He's of a different lineage or a different family. When that happened, when power was taken over from a previous family, it was customary, both in the culture, it was allowed even within the confines of the Old Testament, customary to execute, to exterminate the previous family. So think about that. If Saul was the king. Of course, we know that kingships transfer through families. And so Saul is suddenly deposed as king. Now David comes to the throne. David had every right to exterminate the house of Saul. Now the reason they did that was because they did not want some son or some grandson or some great-grandson decades later to come back, gather an army to come back and make a claim on the throne. And so what did they do? They just they wiped them out. They killed them off. But here we are, and it's about 20 years. Now get this, get this timeline in, in your mind. It's about 20 years since David has come to the throne. Saul's been dead a good two decades by this time. And all of a sudden, David walks into the throne room, maybe, and he just makes this statement. He says, is there anyone in the house of Saul that's left that I can show kindness to. The literal Hebrew word is the word that's used for grace because it can be translated so many ways. Basically, David says, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can demonstrate grace to? David does not ask. Listen, he doesn't ask. Is there anyone deserving? Does he? He doesn't say, is there anyone qualified? No. He doesn't say, is there anyone sharp? No. 
He didn't say, is there somebody I can use? No. Is there anybody that can help me out? No, he didn't say that. Is there somebody that maybe I can add to the army? No, he doesn't say that. He just simply says, is there anyone that I can show grace to? In fact, it's not just anyone, but get this. And this is the part that will make you go tilt. He says, is there anyone from the house of my enemy that I can show grace to? I'm letting that soak for just a minute. Think about your life. Think about all the things that may have transpired in your life and think about the pictures, the faces of those. Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but internally you might say it. To be candid, you'd look at them and say, that's an enemy. They hurt me. They took advantage of me. They abused me. It was unjust. It was unfair. It wasn't right. It didn't shake out like it should have. I mean, it was, it was wrong. Ask yourself this question. If you could say one day, maybe decades later, is there anyone in the house of my enemy I could show kindness to? Can you just say, wow? Does that not at any point and you just go, that, that one verse right there, that, that, that starts blowing me away. Now listen to what it says in verse 2. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, his enemy's house, to whom I may show the grace and kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Uh, Ziba, who is a servant, looks at David and he says, yes, there's somebody still in Saul's house. It's the son of Jonathan. It would have been Saul's grandson. And his name was Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I always think to myself, why would you do that to a baby? And I mean, I mean, they should have just called him Ray or, you know, Mephibosheth. I guess it's better than Mahershalahashbaz. That was Isaiah's kid. Why would you do that? I mean, can you imagine them trying to get through kindergarten and the printing? I mean, that would just be terrible. Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth was still around. Mephibosheth, when all this pandemonium and panic years ago, when it was happening in the city of Jerusalem, and they were trying to rush Mephibosheth out of town because David's army was coming to Jerusalem. And of course, everybody had that mentality that if David's army comes to town, what would they do with Mephibosheth? They would what? Kill him. So a servant grabs up Mephibosheth, hastily begins to run out of the, the palace and run out of the house. There was pandemonium. And this nursemaid or this servant, whoever it was that was carrying Mephibosheth, as, as she's running, I'm assuming it's a she, but as she's running out of the, out of the palace, trips and drops the baby. And as Mephibosheth suddenly is sprung from the hands of his nurse, he lands in such a way that it breaks both of his legs, forever leaving him lame. And so now, 20 years later, Mephibosheth has been somewhere, someplace. He's lame. He doesn't, doesn't walk quite right. It's, his legs were broken and they weren't set. You couldn't set legs like that in those days. And, 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 and he's dysfunctional and, he, and he's living in fear. 
And, and he knows that if he's ever found, he's probably under a death sentence or a death warrant. And, and you can almost hear Ziba saying to David in this conversation that's going on, saying, David, uh, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think he's probably uh, what you're looking for. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you the story, what happened to him. I'm not sure that this kind of a, a guy is going to fit around here. He's not like the rest of us. You know, the rest of us are kind of perfect. But, I, you know, Ziba... You know, Ziba's his legs and he's from your enemy's house. And, and, and I'm just, you can just hear it in Ziba's voice. And then it says in verse four, so the king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. So uh, David said, let's get him. Let's get him. And Ziba says, well, he's in Lodabar. Now I'm going to tell you where he's hanging out. Lodabar. Lodabar actually is the barren place, the desert place. The place of nothing of value. Uh, you, you, you'd never desire a transfer to Lodabar. Lodabar is not like, you know, this great urban area that has Saks Fifth Avenue and, you know, Macy's and the mall down the road and your Starbucks. And, I mean, Lodabar is like this this rural one-horse town where everybody goes to the National Guard Armory on Saturday night and they try to figure out something to do for fun. That's Lodabar. Lodabar is like terrible, terrible. So what does David do? Verse 5. King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here's your servant. So David said to him, do not fear. Because how many of you know, if, if you got summoned to the house of who was now king, and you had been a part of the enemy's house, and now you're going in front of him, you'd have every right to fear. True? Oh, sure. But David said, do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness, or I will surely show you grace for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all, everyone say all, God, all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He had, he had a little bit of an esteem problem, I would say. But, 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 but listen, listen, listen. I, I, don't, I don't know what could have been the answer. I believe David was set in what he was going to do. But he had every reason to believe that when he walked into the throne room of David, he was as good as a dead dog. And the king said to Ziba, verse 9, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. The reason they put that in there was because he had plenty of arms to get this done. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all the Lord my king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And it's interesting, he was lame in both feet. 
This is really an interesting story because I started to think to myself, I said, here's David, it's dinner time. And he calls in everyone that would be eating dinner. And here would be, here would be Absalom coming to dinner with his beautiful hair and his olive complexion. And, and, and he'd just be everything that you would want on the cover of a GQ magazine. I mean, he had six pack abs. I mean, he was athletic. Oh, the girls loved him. He was just, he was everything you would ever want. And then you had Amon and, and, and Amon was a, was a good looking guy too. And, and, and he was quick witted and he understood, uh, 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 you know, uh, things and an organizer and he had a lot of sharpness to bring. And then there was Tamar and Tamar was a beautiful, beautiful daughter of, of David. And, and, and she had all the package there and perfect and all of this happening around the table. Might have called in Joab, his bodyguard, who was this, this hero and, and, and had this history behind him that was made him a celebrity in all of Israel and had all of these people around the table. And then lo and behold, somebody would drag Mephibosheth in. And he's, David say, set him up to the table. I know he can't walk, so someone drug him there. I understand he's the house of my enemy. But is there anyone I can show grace to? It's an amazing scene. Had to have blown Mephibosheth's mind. Can you imagine expecting a spear? But what he received was a dose of grace. It's obviously a picture. The easy picture, listen, the easy picture is the one of God reaching to us. You know, all of us here are Mephibosheths before the Lord. You understand you're not bringing anything to the table that's all that big of a deal to God. There's nothing in you or through you or what you can do that merits one thing from God. But here's the good news. When you didn't have enough wherewithal to love God, He loved you. And when you couldn't reach up to Him, He is now reaching down to you. And you were brought to this place in this church at this time to hear my voice say to you as if it were the voice of God say to you that God is bringing you to his table saying you get to belly up to my table even though there's nothing in you worthwhile. I'm still calling you one of my kids. That's the easy application, I think. The king of the universe calling me to sit at his table when, when I've got nothing to bring to the table. He's just being kind to me. He doesn't have to be. He should have obliterated us all out. But he kept us. He loved us. He wants us. But here's the more difficult. I think revelation that all of us need to get. David was a real person. And this was a real situation. And maybe this is why I started to think about this, honey. I started to think about David. And I've studied the life of David. I've thought about David, about how there's so many great things David did. But can I just be honest with you? Here in a couple of chapters, David messes up big time. David should have been out to war, but instead he's looking over his balcony down at, at, at a woman taking a bath and all of a sudden something clicks in him. And is that something clicks in him? Things happen and he has an affair and out of that affair, he commits a murder and, and God confronts him. Yes, but but even to this day, we, we, we venerate David. And I've often thought to myself, why is it? Why is it that David seems to get by? And I know he didn't really get by, but why is it that David seems to somehow 
not be held as accountable as I think he should be held accountable? Why is it that somehow David seems to slip through and, and, and he's still esteemed through the scriptures, yet he did these things that were so bad? Listen to me. David never frustrated the grace of God. I'm not suggesting that David had to do that. I'm not suggesting that David had to fall into sin or that that was God's destiny. I don't believe that God destined you to sin. I don't believe that somehow that was some grand plan and he, you know, and he was just walking out some grand plan. No, he had choices to make and he made some bad choices. But can I just share this with you? I, I believe all of us are responsible and we need to live our life all out for God every day. And we, we, we need to be open to his strengthening power every day so we don't make bad choices like David did. But I just it just dawned on me that maybe maybe David got grace much because he could give grace. Maybe. Maybe. There's seven things going to go through this super fast. Write it down really, really fast. I'm not going to I'm not going to pontificate on this. I'm going to go through this super fast. Number one, seven practical things David did to demonstrate grace. Number one, David didn't cut off relationship with the house of the enemy. Psalm 23, verse five. I was reading that the other day, the 23rd Psalm. Some of you have even committed it to memory. You remember the line in it that said, you prepare us the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. That's a promise. I, I tell you, there have been times in my life I didn't want to cash that one in. I didn't want to sit with my enemies. Why would I want to sit at a table with my enemies? They're my enemy. For crying out loud. Why would I want to look in the face of someone that produced harm or hurt or threw spears or lied or cheated? Or Why do I want to sit? Why, thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. I don't know about you. I'm not going Hallelujah. I'm saying, you know what? Why don't you give me a table with my friends? That would be a far better table. But do you understand that is the grace of God, which is why that can be a promise of God. God wants us to have something supernatural happen inside of ourselves that even, even if you're at the table of an enemy, you have the capacity to be a person full of grace. Let me tell you, that's what arrests the attention of the world. It's not that you've got so many friends on Twitter. I got 4,000 followers on Twitter. Whoop-de-doo. I heard someone the other day, some celebrity had, I don't know, a million followers on Twitter. Well, big deal. Sit down in church before God. That would impress me, number one. And, and number two is maybe if you sat down in front of somebody that was your enemy and just didn't venerate you and worship you, that would probably impress me too. David didn't cut off relationship with the house of an enemy. Number two, David could still be kind to those who might still seek to harm him. I mean, he didn't know. I mean, Mephibosheth, I don't know. He, he, had no, he had no guarantees that Mephibosheth wasn't still stealthily working something in the background and maybe he had gathered up spies or something. I mean, David didn't know exactly what his enemy could do. Certainly David was in a powerful position, but, but he still didn't know what his enemies might yet still do. His enemies were wrong, yes, but David didn't have to rub it in their nose. He could still be kind to those who sought to harm him. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that not, are you beginning to see sort of why David was compared with Jesus at times? Jesus can still be kind to those who still sought to kill him. Number three, David understood how undeserving he was in the light of his blessings. When we are ungracious people, we aren't, we aren't returning their 
wrong. You know, a lot of times when we get hurt, wounded, when someone becomes an enemy to us, we think to ourselves, well, you know what? I, I just, I'm going to, I'm just going to treat them bad. I'm just going to, you know, just, you know, act distant or aloof or whatever the case may be. Do you understand that when we do that, when we are being ungracious people, we aren't returning their wrong. We're just demonstrating our ignorance. We've received the grace of God. God has blessed you. Is that not true? Undeservingly so. He has blessed each one of us. You can't ever pay that back. You can't reciprocate that to Him. But what you can do is that as He has graced you, now you can grace others. Number four, David didn't have to wait for others to move towards him first. All right, I'll reconcile, but it's, it's, in, it's up to them first. Now, listen to me. There, there's timing to things. I believe that. You may try to do some things and be rebuffed. And maybe when you're rebuffed, then you have to leave it alone. But there are moments, I think, that we need to ask ourselves, if God reached out to me first, then maybe I need to start reaching out to some others first. First. Most of us say, well, I'll reach out when they, when they grovel. When they suck it up and finally say they're sorry and this and that and the other. Listen. Listen, God was reaching out to you long before you even had a conception of confessing your sin. God was reaching out to you when you were in your rebellion and doing everything wrong and against his will and his plan. He was reaching out to you. Do they need to say they're sorry? Sure they do. Do they need to, to make it right? I'm not saying they don't have responsibility. I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me. I can't deal with everyone else. I got to deal with me. And now I got revelation that as God has graced and been kind to me. Well, now I need to be kind. And grace others. Number five, David didn't rejoice in another's tragedy, but he tried to mend it. I don't know about you, but have you ever, ever just secretly cheered for another's demise? Like, sick em, God. Sick em, get em, yeah. They deserve it. You know what? It's time we quit rooting for tragedy. We try to mend it. God's called us to mend people's lives. Number six, David didn't allow him to stay where he deserved. He helped him out. It's one thing sometimes to look at someone and say, God bless you. It's another thing to put your dollars into it. Something that costs you something. I mean, we all can, we all in theory can, can bless and say, God bless you. But, you know, theory is only as good as you're willing to put action to it. God, uh, David didn't allow him to stay where he deserved, but he helped Mephibosheth out. And then finally, number seven, David treated him like one of his own. I mean, he was as good as one of his own. That's what God did for you. He, he treats you as a, as a child. He treats you. Do you understand? You become an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that when he looks at you, he looks at you with the same endearment and love as he does his own son, Jesus and now when he looks at you, whatever your name is, put it in there. He looks at you. He looks at Kevin. He looks at my wife, Tracy. He looks at my household. He looks at us and he has the same thoughts toward us as he does his own son. And he treats me as an heir and he treats me as a joint heir. Do I deserve it? No, I don't deserve it. Do people take advantage of it and presume on it? Oh, they do it all the time. Is it right? No, it's not right. 
But that's up to God. God will sort those things out. But the truth of the matter is, is that He's asking me not to be Holy Ghost Junior, but He's asking me, will you be, will you be the conduit through which grace can be imparted and not frustrate what I'm trying to do? I, I want you to just, look, I'm, I'm done with this. David could have applied the law. Sure he could have. Do you understand that Mephibosheth could have come into that room and David could have cut him down with a sword right there and nobody would have thought a thing. It was, it was perfectly acceptable for David to have killed Mephibosheth. He could have done it. Nobody would have stopped him. Nobody would have blamed him. Nobody would have criticized him. That would have been the law. Mephibosheth under the law would have deserved all of these things. That's what kings do in these situations. But it would have frustrated the grace of God. You and I have, called, have been called to be kings and priests. And I'm just telling you that, that we, have, we have all kinds of rights. Do you not know Jesus had rights? That He could have called down legions of angels to pull Him off the cross and blow out all Jerusalem and kill them all. That was His right. But He saw something beyond His right. He saw grace that could look at Roman soldiers as they're killing Him and still be able to say, if you just got a hold of My grace, it could transform you forever. And that's worth more than My rights. Does that make you go tilt? Sure enough, made me go tilt. I don't even know that I got a hold of all that that may mean. For me, but, but, but I'm here to tell you this. I'm not going to frustrate the grace of God. I'm not going to do it. I, I, I'm going to, this congregation, let me hear, hear, hear me now. Will you still hear Pastor Barry preach that you ought, ought not sleep together, fornicate, go get drunk, be bitter, wrathful, angry, murderers? Give you the tank. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll, I'll tell you all of what, what God wants to write into your hearts. It's no longer going, it's no longer me going, act right. It's me, it's me, listen, it's me declaring to you that there is a grace that you can get a hold of that you don't need this because God has written it here. He's written it here. And if you hear someone out there that says they're under grace and they can sin, they don't, don't you buy into that one. You get the real deal. Come on, get the real deal. Because once you, get the, once you taste of the real thing, you'll recognize a sloppy counterfeit. Don't frustrate the grace of God. Stand with me, will you please?